Well said, well said. Thank you to all of you who are veterans who have served and to your family and the commitment that they have made. Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 22 to 35, and I'd like to read this passage for us as we begin. Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And he replied, go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, and I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful passage this is, and sobering. It is a word that our world needs to hear. It's a word that we need to hear, for there is only one way to the Father, and it is through you, Jesus. And so I pray that as we walk through this passage today, you would bring conviction and you would bring assurance. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs> All right, I take that as an amen there as we start. <laughs> Alistair Begg is a popular radio and Bible teacher. He's also a senior pastor of a church in Cleveland, Ohio. And one day he was asked to speak at a conference in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So he got up early in the morning, went to a restaurant, got a cup of coffee and some breakfast, and he was looking at the people who were coming in and the variety of people. There were some people that looked like they were homeless, maybe had been sleeping on the street. There were college, university students there coming in, and there were professional people. And as he was looking at the crowd that was gathering this morning, you know, he was thinking about himself, and who am I, and what do I have to say to these people? 
And how sometimes in that university setting, you can start to feel that the gospel can seem pretty foolish to a lot of people. And what do I have to say to them? Well, what happened that morning was kind of interesting as God I did a couple things to assure this speaker. One was that as he was sitting at his table inside that restaurant, a sparrow got in and it landed on his table. I mean, that was really unusual, and he thought of God's care for the sparrows and his care for us. And then as he was looking across, uh, there was a a young uh, woman at another table across the way, and he thought she was reading a Bible. And he looked a little closely, and yeah, it sure looked like she was studying the Bible. And so he said hello, and and he asked her, you know, are, are you reading the Bible? Are you a Christian? And she smiled, and she replied to him. She said, oh, yes, I found the narrow way. That was a very interesting answer, and he asked her about it. And this young woman had grown up in Korea. She was Asian, and she came from a Buddhist family. Nobody in her family knew the Lord, and she had come to know Christ as her Savior. And here she was studying, you know, at Harvard University, at this university that prides itself on tolerance of everything except the narrowness of the gospel and the exclusive claims of Christ. And yet she had come to find the narrow way. Thank God for campus ministries. Thank God for the word that is being preached. And Alistair Begg left that morning encouraged and ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, Jesus was asked a question about heaven, about salvation, person called out asking the question, how many will be saved? And Jesus, in his response, really turns it around, and he puts the emphasis in a different place, that the most important question is not how many will be saved, but will you be saved? What will your response be to the gospel when you hear it? And his answer also makes us wonder, When the scripture talks about the narrow way, is it a reference to how many people will be saved? Or is it a reference to the narrowness of the way to heaven? And what we see as we walk through the scripture is really that both are implied in his answer. So let's take a look at this passage. And what we see first of all is the scripture over and over again affirms that there is only one way to heaven and it is through Jesus Christ. In verse 22, we read that Jesus was again going through the towns and villages, preaching and teaching. We believe uh, that at this time he was in Perea. It's a region across the Jordan River. No, he had been in Jerusalem. He had been in, in Israel in that area, and there were people looking to put him to death. And so, for a time, he had gone across the Jordan into this region in Perea where he was now teaching. But we see that his attention was always on Jerusalem. He's going through these villages, but he's thinking about Jerusalem and what awaits him there. And it was in this context that someone asked him this question, are only a few people going to be saved? 
And we don't know who asked the question. We don't know if he was a Jew. We don't know if he was a Pharisee, a religious leader. We don't know if he was a Gentile who was wondering about this. What we do know from that time and place is that the popular thought among the Jewish people was that all Jews would be saved, except for the very worst people. You know, somebody like Korah, who rebelled against Moses and against God in the wilderness and was swallowed up when the earth opened up, and all who rebelled with him. There were individuals like that that they believed would not be saved, but, but we're the Jewish people. I mean, we're the chosen ones, of course. All of us, they thought, were going to be saved and would be there at this great feast that is going to take place in heaven one day. And Jesus' answer challenged their thinking. You know, there are times when people think like that today as well. They go, well, of course I'm a Christian. Of course. I mean, I've gone to church, or I'm, I'm not such a bad person, or I believe in God, or, and they'll say answers like that, and they'll think, well, of course I'm in. Why would you even question that? And Jesus comes along, and he says this. He says, make every effort to enter the narrow door because many will try to enter and not be able to. The word many in that answer is the scariest word in this context. Many are going to try to enter and will not be able to. That, I mean, that's really sobering. Some doors are not that easy to enter. For example, you can think about the front gate of the White House. You can't just walk in on your own, uninvited. You need to have an invitation. You need to have clearance. You need to be able to pass security. Um, there's a phalanx of people that are there who are going to check you out if you go to the White House and you got to empty your pockets, you know, and go through the screening and all of those things. Well, one day, Shaquille O'Neal thought that he would test this out. It was back in 2009 in the summer. He was actually um, doing a radio interview on a sports show. And you know Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, seven foot one, 325 pounds, big smile, got all those rings from those championships they won with the Los Angeles Lakers. And he thought, you know, President Obama, he loves basketball. What do you think my odds are of getting in? And he said this on the air, on the radio, you know, I'm just going to pull up to the White House, uh, you know, uninvited. I'm going to walk up to the gate. Do you think they'll let me in or not? And so he does it. A couple days later, he takes the taxi over there. He hops out. He goes up to the security guard, says, I'd like to get in to see the president. And he was denied access. He was rejected just like he used to reject those ball players who were driving down the lane when he was playing for the Lakers. He could not get in on his own. And later that day, he tweeted, the White House wouldn't let me in. Why? Yes, he's wondering. Well, it's a good example of how we come to God on his terms and not our own. It doesn't matter who we are. Rich or poor, famous or not, doesn't matter what your credentials are or how many initials are after your name. 
We don't come to God on our terms. In John 10, verses 7 to 9, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that I am the gate for the sheep. And all who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. And again, in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's that narrowness of the gospel. There is that exclusive claim that Jesus makes. And why would he say that? It is because he is the only one who has ever dealt with the problem that separates us from God, our sin, our rebellion. It's what he did when he died on the cross and paid the debt that we owed, and he rose again in triumph. No one but Jesus has ever done that. And secondly, we see in this passage that there is only a limited time to enter. And we see that in verses 25 and following. Jesus said that once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, that's it. There's no extension granted. There's no second chance. There's no kind of later opportunity. Once you die, that's it. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. But even before that, a person can harden their heart so much to the gospel that they cannot hear it anymore. And that's a very sobering thing, that people can so reject Christ so many times and harden their heart and turn away from him that there can come a point where they no longer hear it. And even though Jesus says here that we are to strive to enter through the narrow door, what we see is that ultimately our salvation is based on a relationship and not on our works. I think about um, when he says strive to enter, that narrow door, what does he mean? Well, we can put ourselves in a position to hear the gospel. We can go to church where the gospel is preached. That's a good thing. We can read the scriptures. We can read the gospels and study the life of Christ. That's a good thing. We can pray. We can ask God to make himself known to us. We can seek him. Those are all good things, and that's part of striving to know God, striving to understand who he is and to find his will for your life. But ultimately, our salvation is based on a relationship with Jesus. I mean, look at the answer. Why were these people rejected? He will answer and say, I don't know you or where you come from. And then people will say things like this. They'll say, we ate and drank with you, and, and you taught in our streets. Jesus, we, we saw you. We knew you. You know, we, we heard you preaching over there one day. And he'll reply again, I don't know you or where you come from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Now, that's sobering. I mean, that, that's like saying, you know, you may have gone to church, but going to church doesn't make somebody a Christian. You may have said, 
you know, that, well, I had some Christian friends, you know, I hung around them and they talked about you, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You might even have been born into a Christian family with parents who love Jesus, but that doesn't make you a Christian. I think of this time of year when there are so many uh, Christmas concerts that are even on television, and you'll see celebrities who will sing these Christmas carols, and I often wonder how many of them really know Jesus. Are they singing from their heart? Do they really know him? Is that song a song of worship for them, or are they just doing it because Christmas carols are popular, I want to sell an album, I want to do this or that? Do they really know Jesus personally? You see, if there's no relationship with Jesus, you've missed it. Jesus himself said, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the heart of eternal life. That's, That's the way of salvation. That's what it means to know God. It's to know the Father and to know his Son, Jesus whom he has sent. I think of Gail's parents, who when they stayed with us for a time, we brought them to church here with us, and they came and they enjoyed it, but they themselves had not really been in the habit of going to church or reading a Bible. We we bought them a Bible, we encouraged them to read it, and one of the things that I said to them many times was this statement, you don't want to be a stranger when you get to heaven. You don't want to be a stranger. You don't want to stand before Jesus someday and the books are open and your name is not in the book of life. And Jesus says, I'm sorry. I never knew you. Depart from me. Can you imagine how that would feel on that day? Especially if you had thought you were in And now you find out that you are not. That you never trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You never developed that personal relationship with Him. Look at verses 28 to 30. What Jesus describes here would have been absolutely shocking. He said that then there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. This is the messianic banquet. This is what they believed that they would attend, that every Jewish person would attend. And we would see, you know, these great fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're going to see those prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and others. And they're all going to be there and we're going to be there. And there's going to be this lavish feast and celebration. And imagine their shock when they are thrown out. And instead, there are people coming from the east and west and the north and the south. Who are those individuals that are coming? It is now the Gentiles who have come to believe in Jesus from all the different corners of the earth. And they have come because they have placed their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They have come to believe that he is indeed the Messiah, God's chosen one. 
and they are welcome. And it is why Jesus says here that indeed there are those who are last, the Gentiles, who will be first. And those who are first, the Jewish people who were given the scriptures and called by God, who will be last. It is the great reversal that is taking place here. And how shocking that must have been for Jesus' audience that day to hear it. And then thirdly, what we see in this text is that Jesus will complete his mission. We see that in verses 31 to 35. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. I wonder about their motives, these Pharisees who once again came. Were they genuine and saying, Jesus, you need to be on your guard because Herod's looking for you? Or were they themselves part of the group that wanted to kill Jesus? They come and it seems like these Pharisees want to frighten Jesus. Perea was under Herod's jurisdiction, so there was a real threat there. But the Pharisees also wanted to kill Jesus, and they were waiting for him back in Judea and Jerusalem. And maybe they thought that if they frighten him here, he'll go back there and we can arrest him and then we can put him to death. And Jesus' reply is, go tell that fox. And he's referring to Herod, that sly and cunning ruler. Go tell him that I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. Jesus is going to continue his ministry. He's going to continue to heal. He's going to continue to preach. And his eyes are on Jerusalem. And on the third day, he will reach his goal. A reference to his death and resurrection. His mission will be completed. Jesus is going to lay down his life. And Jesus will die in Jerusalem, and he knows it, not in some kind of fatalistic way, but in his sovereign control. It will be at God's appointed time. It's not going to be when Herod thinks he should die. It's not going to be when Pilate or the, the Jewish leaders think he will die. It will be at God's appointed time and hour that Jesus will lay down his life. He tells us that. In John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus said, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. I mean, no one ever spoke like that. I have the authority to lay down my life. And I will do it when the time is right. And I have authority to take it up again. I will come back to life. He would be raised by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit's power, but he would also be raised by virtue of his own power. And then Jesus offers this lament for Jerusalem in verse 34 and 35. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, 
How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You know, he's talking about this, his love, his compassion for the Jewish people, for those who live in Jerusalem and Israel. And he said, so many times I wanted to gather you under my arms. I wanted to bless you. I wanted to watch over you. And you would not have it. And you can think of all the prophets that were sent time after time after time to call God's people back into a relationship with him. And they drifted. They wanted to be like the other nations. They began to worship other gods. They would set up idols in the city, on the high places, all over that area. And they turned away from the living God. All day long, I've held out my arms, God said, to a stubborn people, and you would not have it. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? It didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to come to this kind of end for Jerusalem. Many times he had reached out. But now the time has come, and he will say to them, Look, your house is left to you desolate. And I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is a prophecy of what is going to happen in the days ahead. It's a prophecy of what would happen in A.D. 70 when the Roman army would come into Jerusalem. They would build up their siege ramps. They would starve the city. And many would die by starvation. And then they would break down the walls and the gates. And it would be burned to the ground. Even the temple. The temple was destroyed and it has not been rebuilt to this day day. And when Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those words would be shouted out by his followers on Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem in triumph on that day. But it was not shouted by the religious leaders, was it? Instead, they were the ones who stirred up the crowd to shout out, crucify him, crucify him. But the scripture tells us that that day will come at Christ's second coming. When they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. That day is going to come when they will see Jesus when he returns in glory and they will recognize what they have done, that we put to death the Lord of life. We crucified God's Son, the Messiah. And Zechariah went on to say that on that day the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name, Jesus, Jesus. Do you know Jesus? That's the most important question that anyone can answer. Do you know him? I mean, really know him, not just about him, but know him as your Savior and Lord. 
How does that happen? Well, God uses many different means to bring people into a relationship with his son. He uses visions and dreams, as we have heard those reports coming out of the Middle East. He brings people to those who can share the good news, or he brings God's word to people. You can come to know Christ through just reading the scriptures and asking him to speak to you. You can take the Gospel of John and read through it on your own and ask that question, Jesus, are you who you claim to be? And if you are, would you make yourself known? Leighton Four, the evangelist, told this story about a seminary professor of his whose name was Manfred Gutsky. I don't know if you remember that name, but I do. He was a Canadian, and maybe because I grew up pretty close to Canada, I remember hearing him as a Bible teacher on the radio. And Manfred Gutsky was a big man. Uh, He had been a boxing champion of the Canadian Army in his youth. He had kind of a large, oversized head. He had big hands. He was just um, kind of big in every area of life. He had a low, gravelly voice, and he had a sweeping knowledge of the Scriptures. And when he taught, people listened to his understanding of the Gospel. And he also fascinated people with stories from his own life, and that's what Leighton Ford was sharing here. He said that Manfred Gutsky was a man of God as well as a teacher of preachers, but he had not started out as religious in any formal sense. For many years, he was an agnostic. Yet in the years when he was teaching in a one-room rural school on the prairies of Western Canada, he began to be a seeker, wondering whether there might be a God and he could know him. Well, one day he, he was visiting a church in their small town and there was going to be a special offering that Sunday and there was a farmer who sold two of his cows and brought the proceeds of that for this special offering. And he was impressed by that. Like, why would he do that? And he looked at this man's life and he knew others, farmers in that community who would go to church but often hung outside the doors of the church gossiping and talking about what was going on in the community and not always so concerned about entering the church. But this man... He was devout. He brought his Bible to church, and he would go in and enter those doors and sit down, and he would pray for the service and pray for the pastor. Here was someone whose faith seemed central, and this young teacher was intrigued by that. So one afternoon after school, he was walking across the field to his boarding house, and he was struck by this thought that if God exists then he can see me right now. He can see me, and in fact, he knows everything about me. And he said, I stood in that field, and I pondered that thought, that if God exists, he can see me. So he said, I I took off my hat. That might seem strange, but in those days I wore a brimmed hat and I always took it off in the presence of women or older people or other important persons. So I took off my hat to God. And I said to him, God, I don't know whether you are there or not. And I don't mean anything bad by that. I just don't know. But I want to know, and you know that too. 
So please show me if you are real. And I felt, he said that day, as if something very important had happened in my life. Manfred Gutsky began to pay attention to the God who was paying attention to him. He opened his heart. He wanted to know God. And he found the truth of the scripture that says that if you seek me, you will find me. If you search for me and if you really want to know God as your Savior, you will find him. And you will find, as the scripture says in Hebrews eleven six, that God is a rewarder of all who seek him. And you will come to know the joy and the blessings that come from walking with God each and every day. Do you know Jesus? I think about this passage. There is only one way to heaven, and it is through Jesus. So strive to enter by that narrow door. There's only a limited time, so don't put it off. It is the most important decision that you will ever make. And we don't know how many days we have been given in this life. So come to Jesus before it is too late. And remember the scripture that says that there is only one Lord, and that day is coming when every knee is going to bow before him, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know Jesus, and will you place your life in his hands? If you've never made that commitment before, whether you're here today in our service or whether you are listening online or picking up one of our CDs to listen, I want to lead you in a prayer of invitation today, trusting Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the promises of your word that tell us of how Jesus died and rose again. And he died to pay the penalty for our sins. And it is only through placing our faith, our trust in him, that we can be saved. And so, Father, I pray today for anyone who is here or listening, that you would open your heart and turn to him and say, Jesus, would you forgive me? I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I thank you that you were willing to pay that penalty for me. I want to know you, Jesus, and I invite you to come into my life to be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close? And now may God himself the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And all God's people said, Amen.